Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the You Shine the Loop podcast. I'm your host, Nadia Osman, and we have a great show for you today. So hopefully many of you voted in the midterms, and I'd be personally offended if you didn't, by the way. But you may wonder what the people you elected, particularly your senators, actually do once they're elected. I mean, they obviously make laws, right? But what does that actually look like? Well, you're in luck. We've got the expert on the Senate in the House, no pun intended. Laura Dove worked on the Senate floor for 30 years, culminating in her position as a Secretary of the Majority for the Republican Party under Mitch McConnell from 2013 to 2020. She's got a thing or two to teach us about the Senate, so sit back, relax, and enjoy learning about the cooling saucer of our government. Laura, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, so you, I think, are kind of known as like a guru of the Senate. <laughs> um, and I would say like you've worked the f- the floor for decades, obviously. Um, I kind of want to start out with the big picture, like over your career in the Senate, what kinds of work were you primarily involved in? And like, who did you work with? And kind of in each of those positions, what was the chain of command there? Okay, so I started as a Senate page, which is the lowest rung of the chain of command. So when I when I started as a page, I was 14. They don't take them at 14 anymore. I was in the 80s. Now it's 16 year olds. But so I started working on the Senate floor as a page. You wear a blue pantsuit. You get water, make copies, basically do anything that people tell you to do. And you are definitely the lowest person in any (laughs) system where you're navigating. But the beauty of being a page is that you're so supremely unimportant and you're doing all the things that no one else wants to do. So you get to be in a bunch of rooms and a bunch of situations where more important people aren't permitted because Mm -hmm. they need people to make copies and get water and, you know, help them with their Mm -hmm. administrative tasks. So I started as a page in the eighties and then basically worked my way up on the floor staff till at 2013, when I was ultimately elected secretary for the majority, which is the party secretary. And I, and I was always on the Republican side. I started as a Republican page and stayed on the Republican side. Although it is funny because I have an identical twin sister and we served Mm -hmm. as pages together And I was a Republican page and she was a Democratic page, not by choice, just sort of by luck. Because my, my, when we were in high school, my father was the Senate parliamentarian and that is an officially nonpartisan position. And he was very leery of showing a preference by, you know, having his children on the floor with him on one side or the other. So it was very convenient for him Mm. that he had twins. (laughs) <laughs> and so you put one on either side and my sister was on the democratic side and I was on the Republican side. So I started on the floor at the age in high school and I ended my career in the Senate and I retired in 2020 as the secretary for the majority on the Republican side of the aisle. Mm-hmm. Okay, nice. And what would you say kind of a day in the life of a secretary of the majority looks like? Um, so you're really scheduling the floor and working out the logistics of whatever is happening in the chamber that day. So Mm -hmm. there are two party secretaries, one for each side. And so you're constantly negotiating on behalf of the two party leaders. So they definitely set the tone, the agenda, they make the big decisions. And then you are working to execute 
um, day in and day out. What time are they going to convene? Who wants to come mm-hmm. talk? Who's got an amendment? Who's really mad? Who is having a, who has surgery and therefore you are down a vote. So you shouldn't schedule a vote that's really close. Is it going to be tied? Do you need the vice president to come? Is the vice president in DC or in Qatar at the world cup? Like whatever it is, you're just keeping all the details um, moving and attempting to schedule the floor in a way that protects the rights of all hundred senators. Mm -hmm. Um, And then in terms of reporting, you're elected by the whole Senate, but Mm -hmm. Functionally, you're reporting to the leader. So I, when I started in the Senate, the leader was um, Bob Dole from mm-hmm. Kansas. And um, as I cycled through different jobs, it was Bob Dole, it was Trent Lott, Bill Frist from Tennessee, and then ultimately Mitch McConnell from Kentucky, who is the one who nominated me to become party secretary in 2013. Mm-hmm. And how do those elections work? Like, how do you get nominated? Um, Who's kind of in the running there? Um, I think they used to be contested, but now it's really a matter of whoever the leader wants is nominated at an internal party conference. So Hmm. uh, Leader McConnell would announce to the conference when they're doing the regular leadership elections. And I think we've all been watching the leadership elections over the last couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. I think probably the least exciting election in any of those is probably the party secretaries, but they do get elected during those, uh, during those meetings. Uh, It was never contested. Um, Mm. And I, it was, so you would get nominated by the leader. I would get nominated by the leader ratified by the whole Republican conference. Mm -hmm. And then when the Senate um, convenes for the Congress in January, the whole Senate will then ratify Mm. those, those appointments. Okay. Okay. Um, so kind of just diving into the actual structure of the Senate, could you kind of give us like an overview of like what the committees are and kind of like how do they interact with each other and um, how exactly does the Senate work? Well, so the, the Senate and the House are pretty different. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we all know that the Senate is slower, but yes. it also takes into the account into account the views of all 100 members at any point. So you really have a lot of power as an individual member in committee, on the floor, as legislation is being drafted, as nominations are being considered. Any one senator can can stop things, slow things, or change things. That's true in committee as well as on the floor. So the, the way the committees work is legislation is introduced, it goes to committee, the committees consider it. They do what's called marking it up. So a committee markup will take the base text and add amendments along the way, make changes along the way. And then it gets reported to the floor. And once it's reported to the floor, it sits on what's called the calendar of business. And there are hundreds of pieces of legislation that sit on the calendar of business and not very many of them get pulled off the calendar for floor consideration. But that, so it sits, it sits on that calendar waiting for either floor consideration or most of the time it will it will get passed by unanimous consent. So mm-hmm. big pieces of legislation can take a couple of weeks on the floor. More targeted, less controversial pieces of legislation can get called up and passed in 30 seconds by unanimous consent. But they oh, wow. all go on the calendar first. 
Yeah. And would you say like how much of the legislation is like ends up being unanimous or is like quick? Because I feel like we only really hear about the ones that are like contested, controversial. Um, We don't really hear about the smaller stuff. Some examples of less controversial bills are the Sunshine Protection Act that makes daylight savings permanent, which passed the Senate unanimously, and the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act that required the Justice Department to expedite the reviews of hate crimes against Asian Americans. This passed the Senate 94 to 1 and the House 364 to 62 votes. Yeah, 80 or 90 percent of it will go by either go by consent or will be incorporated into a larger piece of legislation. Mm. Both of those both of those categories require sign off by committees. So a lot of times people will talk about like an omnibus appropriations funding bill that's going to pass and it's going to be 1800 pages and oh my goodness, what's in it? Well, 600 pages of it is going to be non-controversial legislation that's been worked out in the committees mm-hmm. and all the members that's just hitching a ride, mm-hmm. but nothing hitches a ride without sign off from the committee chair and ranking member. So there are okay. all of these checks and balances along the way that uh, will protect the rights of individual members and will definitely protect the prerogatives of committees. Okay. Yeah. And could you kind of explain what an appropriations bill is? All right, so there are two funding processes. There's the budget process and there's the ap- appropriations process. Mm. And it's very similar to just your regular old household functioning at the You'll have a budget for the month. Here's what I'm going to spend. And then the appropriations process is, oh, actually, I actually pulled out my debit card and I bought these other things at the grocery store. So they don't always match. But Congress is supposed to come up with a budget every year. And then they pass appropriations. They're supposed to be on a fiscal year cycle. Um, In practice, it usually comes in fits and starts. They don't usually do an entire year appropriations bill, they'll do a continuing resolution to sort of get you along for a month while they're trying to figure it out, or they'll do pieces of it. But the appropriations process is supposed to run on the fiscal year, which is September 30th to September 30th. And it is supposed to be comprised of 13 individual appropriations bills that slice up the different areas of the federal government and um, decide on what programs are going to be funded in what amounts. Okay. So when I guess the news is kind of saying like this bill is, has to be passed through like budget reconciliation and that like Kamala Harris can like break the vote there. What does that mean? So that's part of the budget process. Okay. So the uh, budget reconciliation bills, first of all, cannot contain appropriations. So they don't, Hmm. they don't, they aren't part of that yearly process where you're allocating money. It's, it's entire, it's an entirely separate process. And it's really far afield from Mm -hmm. the structure that was set up originally. So in 1974, Congress passed a law to make the budgeting process more efficient and to make it easier for Congress to make changes to budgeting and spending throughout the year. If there was a national emergency, if we were at war, if there was a disaster and they needed to quickly change funding levels. So Mm. they thought this would be a really great way to be super efficient. It has a time limit and it can't be filibustered. 
And so it's called budget reconciliation. We're going to reconcile your budget based Mm -hmm. on events that you could not have predicted. That is not how it works anymore. So (laughs) (laughs) Senate and the president of Congress have decided that because it is so efficient and because it only requires a majority vote, they are going to try to bootstrap anything into there that they possibly can to avoid Mm. a filibuster and it both parties do it it happens um it happens every time there's unified government so you Mm. really have to have house senate and president in order to make it an effective you know go around for the filibuster because otherwise the house and senate passing a a reconciliation bill and the president vetoing it is not going to get you anywhere For example, next year with the Senate, if the Senate is democratically held, which it may be, the House is Republican, they're not going to be able to pass anything, majority vote. So it's, it's really a little bit of a, what what the slot machine, what is it? Three apples or three oranges, you have to get all three in order to this work. But it is a way to circumvent the filibuster and there are very strict rules around it because it's supposed to be budgetary. So it has to be an, like basically a column of numbers is the ideal format for a reconciliation bill, but there, the parties and the president have tried very hard to figure out how to backdoor policy changes into reconciliation Mm. because it's the only way to get around the Senate filibuster. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So there, there have been all sorts of interesting policies that have been changed through the reconciliation process. Um, Hmm. but not, um, but not wide scale policy changes. For example, Obamacare, the Mm. affordable care act was not passed through reconciliation. You cannot make huge changes to the health marketplaces of the United States through reconciliation. Right. So they passed it through a regular bill, but then I had, they had a sidecar that added money and moved taxes mm-hmm. around. It was 20, something like 20 pages long. And they passed that through reconciliation. Just a little piece of it you could do. Okay. That makes okay. sense to you, but yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. And for our listeners, can you also explain what the filibuster is? Um, that has had a lot of, I think like recent press and kind of like, what's the controversy around it? Like, why do people care? Um, and yeah. So the filibuster, it's the basic contours of the filibuster is if you want to pass something through the Senate, it's debatable and people can talk about it um, until they stop. They can't talk anymore. And in order to cut off debate, it takes 60 votes, three fifths of the Senate, duly chosen and sworn, which is Mm -hmm. 60 because there are 100, have to vote to stop debating something. So mm-hmm. in effect, that means there's a 60 vote threshold for almost any policy change that you want to have. So when the House passed their infrastructure bill and came over to the Senate, the Senate had to figure out a way to get 60 votes for it. Mm-hmm. And it means it's got to be bipartisan. And it eventually did pass with well north of 60 votes. Um, but you have to have a bipartisan majority to pass anything in the mm-hmm. Senate and it's, and your tools to enforce that 60 vote threshold are delay and debate. So just mm-hmm. slow things down and talk. 
Much of the controversy around the filibuster is the fact that while it is an important method to operate checks and balances, minorities are largely able to block majorities from passing bills on their agenda. Budget reconciliation is a way to bypass this block. You can have debate that looks like Mr. Smith goes to Washington speaking for you know 24 hours or mm-hmm. Strom Thurmond during the Civil Rights Act or Ted mm-hmm. Cruz eating green eggs and ham. You can have filibusters that look like that. Or you can have filibusters that are super quiet because everybody knows you don't have 60 votes for something and they're all talking mm. off camera. Laura is talking about the difference between a talking filibuster and a silent filibuster here. Um, I think tends to make people angry because they can't really see the obstruction, but it's also a way to force progress. For example, the infrastructure bill, which ended up getting more than 60 votes, no one filibustered it on the floor. They just said, hey, I'm not going to vote for this unless we can come to an agreement on it. And then they went off and talked to each other, came to an agreement, and the filibuster went away. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, And so I guess, can you explain how the majorities majorities and minorities work? Um, And like, how do they, is there anything like that the majority leader and the minority leader, do they work with each other on things? Um, And are they kind of like the point person there? Yes. And the majority and minority leaders work together all day, every day. They have to, because you can't do anything unilaterally. Mm -hmm. Um, Everything in the Senate requires coordination, collaboration, unanimous consent, checking, double checking, notifying. Like, I mean, it's just constant, 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 constant. It's not true on the House side, but it is 100% true on the Senate side. So they have to be in constant contact. And usually the two leaders will um, ask the party secretaries to be that conduit for communication because a lot of it is really sort of quotidian detail stuff. Mm. What time do you want to take a recess for lunch tomorrow? Um, You know, Senator blank wants to make a 90 minute speech on the anniversary of something. How can we fit that in all those Mm. things? get negotiated between the two party secretaries and then they get up, re-upped to the leader level if there's a conflict or as an FYI. Okay. Okay. And how does that differ from the house side? Um, the house majority can do almost anything unilaterally. Mm. 90% of the stuff they do, they just do. Mm-hmm. Um, they follow a different golden rule. He who has the gold makes the rules. So <laughs> if you're in charge in the house, you're in charge. Mm-hmm. You can decide what to bring up. The rules committee will say, you know, here are the amendments that are in order, if any. And mm-hmm. as long as you have a majority to keep moving, you can pass anything and do anything. It's okay. just not true in the Senate at all. Right. Right. Um, and how would you say the Senate works differently in a lame duck session as opposed to like a normal time of the year? A lame duck session is when Congress is in session during the period of time in between elections and when the new congressional class is sworn in. This typically happens between November and January. Um, I think that the the lead up to an election is always tough because you have a certain percentage of senators who are nervous about taking tough votes. Mm. And then you have a certain percentage of senators who really would like to make others take tough votes. You just, it's called, they call it silly season. And then people mm. just start poking at each other mm. and there are more political votes and there's more posturing, sort of the nature of the beast. Yeah. After the election, 
um, when you know what's going to happen in January in terms of party control, there's more certainty and there's less posturing. So they figure out, okay, what is expiring? What do we have to do? Are there things we can do to work together? You know, for mm-hmm. example, the same-sex marriage bill is passing the Senate next week. Mm-hmm. And they were nervous. The proponents of that bill were nervous about having that vote in September, right before the election, because they were worried that people who would normally support that would be would would find it harder to take those votes um, and feel like they could be misconstrued right before the election. And then you would end up with, you know, more political members lining up some tough votes and you could end up derailing that bill Mm. um, in ways that were counterproductive for the fact that they did want this to be signed into law. So mm-hmm. the proponents, um, Tammy Baldwin and Susan Collins said, you know what, we're going to do this after the election so that we don't end up um, with collateral damage from all the posturing that's happening. So it'll pa- it's going to pass in the lame duck. It has the same amount of support that it did before the election, but the playing field is much more stable. I think that's the, uh, that's the real thing is mm-hmm. during the lame duck, there's a lot more stability and a okay. lot less sort of hyperbolic political posturing. You wouldn't say it's more like rushed in, in case like somebody a party loses control of the Senate or any sense. Um, I think you could end up with a little bit of a panic from people. You know, they, mm-hmm. you, they could try to rush it, but um, the Senate doesn't rush very well. Yeah, <laughs> so it just it is what it is. There's a lot on the to do list for this year's Congress during the lame duck session. The Senate just passed the Respect for Marriage Act this week, and it will now head back to the House. Top of the list is also reforming the Electoral Count Act that would clarify the role of the vice president in counting electoral votes, among other reforms. And lastly, the government needs to pass legislation that funds the federal government. If Congress doesn't do this by the December 16th, they could risk a government shutdown, as Laura mentions. Yeah, and can you kind of explain what a government shutdown is as well? And like, how does that happen? Because that's happened a few yeah. times in the past few yeah. years. It's happened a lot, unfortunately. So I became mm. a party secretary in 2013, about a month before we shut down the government. Um, mm. So Senator Cruz was very angry. Senator Cruz and some, and some conservatives in the House and Senate were very angry about Obamacare. Um, the Affordable Care Act was um, coming into its own October 1st, the exchanges were opening. Everything was opening October 1st. Government funding ran out September 30th. So Hmm. 24 hours. And they tried to defund the Affordable Hmm. Care Act through the appropriations process. They failed and the government shut down for Hmm. almost a month. Um, And what happens is everything that is non-essential shuts down. And non-essential is everything from national parks, you know, to, Hmm. you know, this, like the thing, the things that don't have to happen, but you'll have the department of Homeland security, the army, all of those things are essential, but they could be unpaid. So I've, Hmm. I've always been, I was always termed essential. I was always an essential worker. So I spent lots of time working and not getting paid. Oh, wow not the greatest thing for morale. And then they, um, they end up usually doing back pay, which makes it even harder because if you're an essential worker, you're working the whole time. Mm-hmm. They're telling you, you're not going to get paid, but then they pass back pay for everyone. So you've worked and all of your neighbors and friends have had the month off. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. So it happens a fair. So government shutdowns happen a fair amount. And some of, sometimes it's complete government shutdown because they haven't passed any of their appropriations bills. Sometimes mm. it's a partial government shutdown because you have these 13 indi- individual bills. So if some of them have been passed, you can end up with a partial government shutdown. We had a couple of those during the Trump administration where, right. the, where the Congress had passed a few of the bills, but not all of the bills. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Okay. And how does the Senate parliamentarian kind of differ or like play out into all of this? And how does that role differ from what you did, the um, secretary? Okay. So the Senate parliamentarian is a nonpartisan role. So I would say they're more like the referee or the umpire, depending on what sport you're playing. And then the party secretaries are more like the first base coach. Mm -hmm. So party secretaries are partisan. They're trying to figure out the strategy. They're trying to win the game. Mm. And then the parliamentarian is in the middle, calling the balls and the strikes. So the Senate rules are very complex. Um, they're not written down in any one p- place. A lot of them mm. are driven by precedent. So something happens in the Senate, the next time it happens, they're like, oh, well, it happened this other way. So this is how we'll interpret this law or this rule. Oh. So they are the person who is charged with interpreting the rules. They advise the presiding officer. So you'll never hear the parliamentarian. They give advice to the presiding officer who is the vice president or whoever happens to be sitting in the chair at the time. And that Mm -hmm. person will repeat that advice to the Senate. Mm. So a lot of, you know, you'll hear some people saying, oh, they should just ignore the parliamentarian. Well, the parliamentarian does not get ignored because it's they they're asked to make these rulings and sometimes you can have you could have arguments with them and try to persuade them to do something different that happens Mm. but once a ruling has been transmitted to the presiding officer usually the the ignoring the parliamentarian thing doesn't happen right that's really interesting the precedent piece like I, i that kind of reminds me of like the supreme court in the sense of like interpreting precedent and the rules and the law like I don't, I never thought of the parliamentarian that way. Yes. Yes. This person is, is charged with interpreting these rules. And it, the thing that gets, makes me mad about the way that people seem to treat the parliamentarian publicly, like Twitter just hates this person, <laughs> yeah. um, is the Senate asks them to make these decisions and then gets mad at them for making these decisions. It's mm. possible for the Senate to make these decisions for themselves but for hard decisions, they like to hand it over to the parliamentarian. So that's mm. that's the hard part. Yeah. Yeah. Twitter can get upset about a lot of things. A lot of yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I guess I guess from our conversation, it's clear that the Senate has like a lot of rules, um, is very rigid in that way. How do parties decide what legislation to prioritize and like how do they really strategically lay that out? Well, so it's up to the leader. Um, and, mm. but the leader that I, Senator McConnell has a really funny description of being majority leader. I'm trying to think, he says being majority leader is like being the caretaker of a graveyard. <laughs> Everyone's below you, but no one listens to you. Oh, wow. <laughs> so the leader gets to decide, but the leader gets to decide based on a ton of input from the members of their conference. Yeah. And then other interested under stakeholders like the president, you know, like mm-hmm. people have a lot of opinions, but ultimately it's the leader who takes all that information in and decides, you know, mm-hmm. is the juice worth the squeeze? Is this bill going to take three weeks? And therefore I'm not going to be able to do these other seven things. 
Mm-hmm. Um, do I want to use the coin of the realm, which is floor time on this priority, or do I want to do these priorities or can I trade some things around? Mm-hmm. Okay. No, Interesting. The, who decides, the majority leader who decides. Okay. And on the minority leader side, while the majority leader is deciding legislation, what are they doing? Are they trying to build coalitions to stop certain bills or like work with the other side? So so there's some, there's some things that are bipartisan. So um, McConnell supported that bipartisan infrastructure bill. He wanted, Mm -hmm. he wanted Schumer to schedule it. He wanted it to pass. Um, Mm -hmm. He had some opinions about what went in it. So he wanted to be part of the conversation on it, but he was supportive of it. Um, we, they did a bill this summer, um, on semiconductor chip supply, supply chain issues. I'm not sure if you heard about it. Originally Schumer had a huge China policy bill. It's called endless frontiers. It was enormous. Senator McConnell liked 35% of it. He really liked the chips piece and some other pieces of it, but he didn't like the whole thing. So he said, we are not going to cooperate with the whole thing. But if you take the 35% that there's bipartisan support for, then we will make it easy for you. You will get the mm-hmm. votes. There will be no filibuster. So yeah. that's what they did. So it's it's a bu- it's just a bunch of like give and take. Mm-hmm. But they will yeah. they will all have to sign off on something for appropriations because funding does expire December 16th. Right. So the leaders are going to have to negotiate what that looks like, and that will be with. The appropriations committee heads both the chair and the ranking member of the appropriations committee in the senate are retiring they are gone they turn into a pumpkin on january 3rd so they're mm-hmm. going to want to leave their mark on the appropriations process so it's going to be very important to them what that belt looks like and how big it is and what the priorities mm-hmm. are included in it so it'll be interesting to see what comes out of the senate appropriations process this mm-hmm. so i guess like the final takeaway I've taken from this conversation at least is kind of like I guess the question really is is like is the Senate broken and how can we weigh the need for checks and balances with the need to also pass like really important legislation um I think the Senate is emphatically not broken I mm-hmm. think the Senate is that's good prob- to hear <laughs> yeah I think it is probably the only thing that is saving us from complete and total polarization and breakdown hmm. um I think it is good to force people to talk to each other across the aisle. They're not going to do it unless they have to. I mean, look what happens in the house, right? Look what happens at your Thanksgiving dinner table. Mm-hmm. If you don't agree, agree with someone, you either don't talk or you argue. But in the Senate, you have to talk. And if you're arguing it, it needs to be towards some purpose. So the rules of the Senate force members to compromise. And in order to get something done, you have to compromise. It's very hard to do something one party only. And even when you are doing something one party only, look at what happened with the reconciliation bill this year. I mean, it took forever. It was really hard, probably took longer than it would have doing a regular order. You know, it's not a magic wand. The reconciliation process is not a magic wand. Um, And it took a, whatever it was, $6 trillion bill and took it down to 1.9 trillion in the Senate. Senate is always a moderating influence and a moderating influence makes for more durable policy because the Congress, the House and Senate have flipped three, four, five, six, seven times in the last 25 years. You really don't want policy to change 
and careen back and forth every two years. You need policy mm-hmm. to stick. So, yeah. you know, as controversial as um, the Obamacare law was, it stuck in the the Republicans in the House and the Senate made changes to it. They got rid of the individual mandate because they thought that was punitive. They shored up pieces of it. They put, they sent pieces of it to the states. They made changes to it, but they did not repeal the underlying law. Um, and you could say that's good or you can say that, that that's bad, but you can also understand that having a huge piece of policy that is durable and is not going to change every two years is better for the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a good, I don't know, hopeful note to end on. Um, Cause I, <laughs> I think... love me some Senate. <laughs> <laughs> that's I good. Think, I think like I, a I lot. Tr- yeah. I truly believe the filibuster is the soul of the Senate and they're not, they don't treat it very well. Um, and they could definitely do better. They could have better culture and more, more respectful culture and, you know, be a little bit more responsive, but the filibuster is the only thing that's saving us from true wheels come off polarization in Congress. We should take care of it. Laura, thank you so much for being on the podcast with me. And I really enjoyed everything that you've had to teach us. Well, thank you so much. It was a pleasure chatting with you. Well, you heard it here first, folks. The Senate isn't broken. That being said, I understand that many of us are frustrated with the state of politics in our country right now, that it's just so polarized. But think about what Laura told us, that the Senate is perhaps one of the main mechanisms that is forcing cooperation across the aisle. I mean, look at the Respect for Marriage Act that passed just this week. It got a total of 61 votes in the Senate, enough to pass the supermajority threshold that the Senate requires. While of course it's upsetting that a third of the Senate voted no on strengthening federal protections for same-sex and interracial marriages, it's still uplifting to see that the Senate, with all its flaws that certainly do need rethinking, has the potential to work. And honestly, that's enough reason to have hope for our political institutions. For you, Shine the Loop, I'm Nadia Osman. See you in the new year.